I'm going to speak this morning a bit about having a renewed mind and the reason and need for that. Um, both my parents died within the last couple of years and then we're dealing with some close to end of life issues with Shar's mom and that has brought me into a season where I've just thought about family traits and habits and patterns and things like that and um, some of it's good, some of it isn't. That's just who we are. But uh, in walking through that um, and reading through the Old Testament recently, uh, I've been drawn to some stories there. And also from Romans 12, remember in the first verse it says, urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And that's, that's, your, that's worship, to give yourself completely unto the Lord. And then it goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And, and so in looking at that, he's writing to people who have embraced the message of the gospel. They're, they're Christians. And yet he's saying, there is an opportunity here for you to be changed for a renewal to take place, for a, a transformation of our minds. And we, we look at that and we go, well, I'm saved. Yeah, that was a good start. <laughs> like I always used to tell my kids, go clean your room. Yeah, you've got a good start. Salvation, that beginning point, is a good start. But if, if you really desire to flourish in God, then there's that opportunity to keep growing and to actually be transformed, where in a sense you evaluate your life by what the Scripture has, and if, if your life isn't living up to what the Scripture is declaring as a good thing, then you chase what the Scripture has instead of what you've been doing. And in the same way, if, if the, you have that sense of the Lord speaking into your heart and saying, I want you to do this, there's an opportunity to fight the fears that it would say, but I've never done it this way before, and this is, a, you know, this is the way our family always did. No, this is a better way. And you have that moment where you have to decide, do I trust them enough to actually do this? So that said, I want to go back through some of the stories of Scripture. And, and really, you know, the very first sacrifice, official sacrifice, would have been with Cain and Abel, right? And the older brother's sacrifice isn't accepted as well as the younger brother's, which would really hack off an older brother, um, at least from my perspective, being an older brother. Um, never like to be one-upped by a younger brother. But that said, that was, you know, that pride, right? But it, the, the essence of the story is Abel brought the very best of what he had and offered it to God. It was a respect factor that said, you are worthy of my very best. And Cain had said, brought some of the fruit of the field or some of his labor, but it doesn't say anything about it being precious. In fact, God tells him, if you do what is right, won't it be accepted? So Cain, he knew who God was. He understood that you know, God was the ruler, but he apparently hadn't really just taken it to heart that this was to take his very best, so to speak. At least that's the way I see it. 
And in that, um, Cain is warned. He says, you've got to deal with sin. It's ready to seize you. And he doesn't. He ends up killing his brother. And it, in some ways, <laughs> this is a startling thought, but we're only one generation away from murder at any point. Our lives need to be transformed. They need to be turned toward God. But the, the thought that this could happen even in the second generation is just astounding to me. It wasn't a long, slow slide. It was there. So that said, I, uh, it, it said of Abel in Hebrews 11, by faith he presented an acceptable sacrifice or a more acceptable sacrifice. So there was something in his relationship to God and his commitment to the Lord that was unique in comparison to Cain. Next, I want to go to the stories that intertwine with Simeon and Levi. But to get there, I want to talk a little bit about their dad, Jacob. Um, Jacob was born clutching his brother's heel, and they called him the grabber. And associated with that is a deceiver or um, the picture that they have, with which their words often are describing visuals, not quite the same as our language. But it's like somebody who had tried to slide their foot under somebody else's heel to trip them up. And, and so that was kind of associated with this name. And so when later on he, he becomes a, a cheat and a thief and... and He's, he cheats his brother out of his birthright and then or his blessing birthright and then he steals the blessing that the father would pray over him and uh, his brother's mad enough to kill him and he has to flee for his life but that's kind of the the, the father of the faith so to speak the father of Israel this is you know this noble beginning right now, he has an encounter with the Lord, but he also moves to a place where he has to live with his uncle because he, he's run away from his brother. And his uncle is a bigger cheat than he is, apparently. And, you know, when it comes time to discuss leaving, he's talking with his wives and, and he's going, uh, your, your father's cheated me 10 times. He's changed my wages. He says, it's time to go. And uh, the gals... They're not happy about life either. You know, they, they're going, yeah, he sold us. And he's taken everything and spent it anyway. Yeah, we're ready to go. You know, he treats us as foreigners. He doesn't, you know, he, in other words, their father-daughter relationship is not everything you could dream of. So that's the essence of family that we're going to talk about like with the next two. And so Simeon is born, and his mom names him. Uh, it's connected with the idea of hearing, God heard that I'm hated. I always uh, looked at this, you know, some of the translations go unloved, but the literal sense is I'm hated. And she goes, maybe my husband will love me now that I've given him a son. You know, so again, the family dynamics are awful in this sense. How would you like to have your name attached with hatred? 
Nobody loves me. That's my name. You know, it, you, <laughs> we're starting to look around and go, yeah, there's some junk in my family too, but it, it's really not that much more than this. The next son, Levi, she, she names him that and saying, maybe my husband will become attached. Maybe my husband will love me now. My husband will become attached to me. If yeah, I've given him another son, maybe, maybe this will be the thing that draws our lives together in this loveless marriage. And so, again, children growing up in this environment, in a house where love really isn't functioning the way it's supposed to. And uh, the two sons then um, start to... Uh, <laughs> They become characters. And one of the stories that you first see with them is that their sister, Dinah, gets raped by one of the guys in town. Again, we're talking disasters at all kinds of levels, right? Dad keeps his peace. He doesn't really say anything. It appears that he's afraid of, of something happening or it even being challenged. But the, the guys come and say, we'd like to marry your daughter and... and make things right. And uh, Simeon and Levi decide, nah, not with our sister. This is just wrong. So they, they make an agreement, but three days later, they go and kill all the men of that town. So, I mean, there's a thirst for justice, but it comes out in a violence that's, that's odious. And then it appears the whole family gets involved because they plunder everything. They, they just seize it, steal it for themselves. So a wrong was done, but the response is way out there. So that's, that's our introduction to Simeon and Levi. And then um, they end up selling the younger, or the young, a younger brother, one of the loved ones, they're upset enough with him that he's had some dreams, Joseph. They sell him. Uh, their plans were to kill him, but they're thinking, well, why not make some money? And the oldest brother, Reuben, has said, don't do that. This is wrong. This is the oldest brother that slept with one of the other of the father's wives. Again, we're talking to him. This is God's people. Okay? So... When Joseph is dealing with his brothers, he ends up uh, in kind of a drama that's going out in the reestablishment of their lives. He ends up uh, binding up Simeon and uh, putting him in jail for a few months uh, until the others will bring back the youngest son. And it's all, it's all planned for reconciliation, but Simeon, it appears, had been the one that was leading the charge to sell the brother and just get rid of him. So that said, you step into a, several hundred years later when the people are being freed. Oh, I, I missed one thing. When it comes to the end of Jacob's life, he's to pray over his sons. And he makes a couple declarations about Simeon and Levi. You know, he says, Reuben, you're firstborn, you defiled my bed, no blessing for you. Simeon and Levi... Your swords were weapons of violence. 
You brought shame on the family. Uh, you're going to be dispersed among the tribes. You're not going to flourish like the others. Judah is the first one that receives a true blessing. But that said, he has, he has made this declaration over them and saying, you will not have the same uh, land and, and blessing that the rest of the tribes are going to have. And so that's, that's when they come out of Egypt. Now, Moses and Aaron were Levites. And they are living under essentially a curse saying that you are not going to get the same kind of land that the others are. And the question comes up then, well, if we are living with curses from the past or messed up family life or community, country, whatever, how can God step in and bless us now? How can he affect in a positive way, what's already been caused is chaos. That's a fair question for all of us, right? Because we begin to identify family traits and we can say, some of that is really messed up. What are we going to do about that? Well, there's several things that take place during their time in the wilderness. God has brought them out. He has delivered them. In a sense, that's like a, a salvation from Egypt, out of slavery. But there still has to be a turning of the heart and a, an adapting to what God's desires are for them to flourish. Moses has been up on the mountain. He, uh, he God tells him there's trouble going on, you've got to go down. He sees what's going on, he gets angry, and the very tablets that God has written out, he throws them down. But again, it's the first address, it's the second addressing of Moses' anger. He killed a man who was mistreating one of his people initially. Now, with that, Again, like a Levite, like Levi is, you know, from the grandpa from way past, there was an injustice being done, and his weapon is violence. And so it's still like a mark on the family. And, you know, it's, it's kind of going on, but he goes down to the camp. Aaron has let things run wild. He is, he's made a golden calf. You know, people came to him and said, we don't know where Moses is. We've got to do something. And, and so Aaron says, give me your jewelry. And, and he makes this calf. And when he goes to explain it to Moses, he says, I just threw it in the fire and out it came. <laughs> Liar. Um, but in that, uh, Moses comes down and he tells, he says, who is with me? This has got to stop. And he says, strap on your swords, go through the camp, and whoever's participating, this, is, this has got to stop. And the Levites side with him. <laughs> that family trade again, coming out with the swords, they slay 3,000 people. But God makes a comment, he says, because you sided with me. 
because you chose to honor me in this, you're, I'm going to ordain you for service to the Lord in this. You're going to become my, my priests. And so in this picture, even though the Levites have this heritage, even though there is a violence attached to it, even though there is this, and this thirst for justice, somehow in this, God is beginning to work a good thing in Moses and the, and the others just saying, you are honoring me, and so I'm going to place you as priests in this group. And if you remember, the priests get spread among the tribes. They don't ever have their own section, so to speak. They get different cities, they get land plots, but they are given a place within the tribes, even though this curse is on them, it is beginning to become a blessing. What I want to suggest to you is that your heritage can be turned for blessing if you allow your mind to be transformed. If you'll allow yourself to be renewed by the Lord, the things that can be detestable about your past can actually be used for value in the right setting with God. And he'll take that and, and, and turn it for something that you never dreamed possible. So, that said, they are separated that day. Now, Aaron, Aaron gets into a batch of junk. You know, he will get his family first. You know, he, he made the golden calf. He and Miriam led a rebellion against Moses where God had to come down and say, I talked to this guy face to face. What are you chirping over? Paraphrase. And, and, and in that, um, God says, this is my chosen. And so Aaron backs off. But he is also with Moses in the striking of the rock. And Moses was told, I, I want you to honor me. I want you to speak to the rock and let water flow out of it. Now here's where Moses, in that violent tendency, smacks the rock like he had been told to do once before, that water comes out, but God says, because you did not honor me in this and make my name great before the people, he says, you're not going into the promised land. So there's a price with that sin. There's a price when we, when we fail to respond, even though we are God's chosen. And so the, the, the challenge becomes, what are we doing? You know, when we're, we, we have accepted Christ, we are walking forward, but are we really dealing with the issues necessary to see the fullness of life that he intends for us? And that, that is it's a significant thing that we do some soul searching and just say, what is my history? What has been going on? And how can this be used for good if I will allow it to be? Not to say that it'll ever disappear. You know, it's amazing to me that this this violence, you know, was used for good and evil. But it's tracking with them. This thirst for justice is still being used. But it's, it's, it's tied to their family in a way that they just can't pull out. Now, Aaron, you know, his sons, two of them die when they're, they're participating in the priesthood. They've been given this blessing, but they're still careless about what they're doing. In Leviticus chapter 10, it says that 
Nadab and Abihu went to offer unauthorized fire. Or they, they were doing something wrong. <laughs> they got smoked, literally. And uh, he still has a couple sons left, but he's warned. He says, you're not to be getting drunk when you, when you go into the house of the Lord. So it, it may have been the issue. But he also said, you have a responsibility to define what's holy and what isn't and to make sound judgments for the people. He says, that's your role here. In other words, you are the justice people. So he, <laughs> that family thing from way back is still having impact. But there's a, a caution thrown out saying, it doesn't just come without embracing what God has. There's a, a story a little bit later where one of Aaron's grandsons, there's more goofiness going on. Among the people of Israel, they had, they had fallen into sin with the Midianites. Um, part of the thing in those days, often there would be like temple prostitution with the different cults. And so the, the men of Israel were sleeping with the women of Midian, but there was a, an idolatry associated with it. And so even though Balaam had prophesied, you can't beat these people, he had, told, he had apparently informed the Midianites, the only way you're going to beat them is for them to beat themselves. And so they had fallen into sin, and there was a plague going on. It says 24,000 people were slain. And Phineas, the grandson, takes a spear when he sees a man coming into the camp with a Midianite woman, and they're in the tent. He drives a spear through both of them. Again, that family violence thing, still on them. But this time, it says the plague was stopped because of Finn and Finn, that guy's zeal for the Lord. It says, I will, his descendants after him, there will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So he's told the priesthood is going to remain in your family. You know, the family that had that curse of being dispersed now is told the priesthood is going to live with your family from now on. What an incredible turn and even a using of even what had been evil. So that now they're, they're, they're blessed among the tribes. They're, they're the leaders, so to speak. They're the ones that hear from the Lord and give advice and wisdom and offer sacrifice. Um, the other side of the story are the Simeonites. You know, the, the man that had the, the spear driven through him and the woman... That, yeah, a, a Simeonite leader. <laughs> they hadn't gotten it together yet. And from the beginning of Numbers to the end of Numbers, when you track the, the amounts of people, there's 603,000 warriors at one point, 601,000 at the second thing done many years later. But the Simeonite tribe during that time shrank a great deal. They went from one of the larger tribes to one of the smallest, if not the smallest. 
And so, you know, when you talk about plagues going on and things, there most likely were a lot of Simeonites losing it. So, when it comes to the new land, Judah has given us huge portion of land, and after they kind of look it over, they're going, this really is more land than what we need. This is too big. We can't sustain this. And so they take cities from within the allotment of Judah and give it to the Simeonites. And that's how they, they settle. They are never given traditional boundaries like the rest of the tribes. They're within the tribe of Judah. And so, again, that dispersion takes place. I, I look at these things and I marvel at the complexity of our God who sees all and makes provision. And he sees the very environment that we've grown up in. And he knows what needs to take place. And if our hearts will yield to him and, and give the appropriate respect and honor to him, we are offered the opportunity of having the transformation of life that would bring allow a blessing to flow into us and through us. You know, if you track the life of Moses, he chose to identify with Israel. He had the opportunity of living as an Egyptian. He chose to live with Israel. And so he made a righteous decision. But even in that leadership, you know, that first, the first time he... At 40, he, he kills a man, and he's 40 years in the wilderness to start with before the next 40. So I, most of his life is wilderness living, and it's attached to this violent response that, of what he had done. He, he saw an injustice, he did it. But he's, he is ang his anger is noted many times. You know, he's, he's angry when people go out and collect too much manna. And in some ways, they need a, a leader that's saying, this is not right, I will not accept it. And, and so it, at times, it's, it's, it was absolutely needed. His breaking of the tablets, I wouldn't say that was the best decision. The one archaeological thing that would be amazing to have is something written by God's own hand. Gone. But anyway... Uh, Korah's rebellion, again, he's, he's angry. He says, I have never stolen anything from you. But he had to stand up and declare himself, and, and God, God took care of him in that. And regarding the Midianites you know, and the plunder, he went after the officials and said, you cannot be taking this. This was to be dedicated to God. And he draws a line again. But again, that, that temperament that even went back generations, that was attached, God was beginning to shape it and use it for good, even in that. I want to read just a few more verses. This is out of Exodus 34, when, when Moses was asking, I want to know who you are. I, I, need, to, I need to know who you are. God reveals himself in this way. He says, I'm the Lord, 
A God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. So he's saying, this is who I am. This is who we're dealing with. This is the same God. He didn't change from Old Testament to New. This is who we're dealing with. And he says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's an awareness in our hearts that says, our sin doesn't just necessarily have impact on us. It has impact on generations. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? But at the same time, for what we see from Scripture, there's an opportunity when we turn to the Lord to have even what's been harmful turned to value. And that's when you, when you go through your family history and heritage and you're going, <laughs> you know, I see that. I see it in me. God, break that off. Transform my mind. Make be renewed by you. Let this be the last generation where this is a curse. Let it now become a blessing. You know, transform me so that I can pass this on to my children in a way that is valuable. One final passage. This is out of Deuteronomy. When Moses was making his final statement, that's essentially the book of Deuteronomy. It's a review of what's been done and a, a, a declaration. And, and he's talking about blessings and curses. And he's saying, you want to set yourself up for blessing. You want to position yourself where God can bless you. And, and so he's making these declarations you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house. He is, he's made a mention. He said, you know, you saw all these things that went on in the wilderness, but your, your kids really didn't see most of that. So it's going to be important that you keep bringing these experiences to them and you keep making these declarations of truth. And, and you, you keep that in front of them, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It says, you know, wherever it can be seen, let there be evidence of God being a part of your life. You know, like the door, everybody who enters knows there's something about this house. On the gates. You enter our place, we serve God. That, you know, that commitment. See, is that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens above and the earth. And he goes on into the blessings that are potential for them. So I, I just, 
I put that out this morning and I say, what family traits do you see in regard to your upbringing? Good and bad. Have you, have you seriously just kind of charted, so to speak? This seems to be one of the temperaments of our family, or this seems to be a function. Because you'll, you'll see those strengths, and you'll see those traits both in the things that you do really well and the things you do really poorly. But it can all be turned toward the Lord. And then you begin to ask, what renewal is needed? And what would renewal look like? You know, if I'm going to live differently, what... What, is, what does that even appear to be? And, and we ask the Lord to give us a vision as to, to what, you know, what would life look like if I were living this way? And how am I possibly going to get there? What has to be transformed and renewed? And then it's important also to ask, what blessings are mine to pass on? What's already been changed? What's, what's new in me or what have I received that, that I can extend? I've mentioned this before, but I, you know, my grandparents were first-generation Christians, but at the end of their lives, they were praying for their extended family, um, many hours a day. They would get up and have morning devotions, and then they would pray, and then, then after lunch they would have afternoon devotions and pray. And then in the evening, of course, you have evening prayer. But they would remember every single one of us kids and grandkids every day, and then that was passed on, and my parents did the same later in life. My aunt, who I didn't enjoy visiting, I found out at the end had done that. I felt very bad over my thoughts before. <laughs> but, you know, the, the challenge throwing, thrown out to me now is, am I going to continue that? You know, because I have reaped the fruit of it. And there are many in our family that are serving the Lord as a result of such a lifestyle. But, you know, it, it, that's one of the good things. And I'm not going to share the rest of my laundry today. Uh, there are some things that I look at and go, I hope to God I can see the change in this. But that's available to us. What an awesome, awesome thing. Let's sing a song and then do communion. And let's, let's allow the Lord to, to process this in our hearts as, as we sing that, okay?